Welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists creating a safe place to have authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. First time recording, one of us recording not at home, which is super crazy. Yeah, but there are all these podcasts that they actually recorded together, and then they had to learn how to record remotely, and we're just spoiled. We've always recorded remotely, so there's no excuse. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of nice. It is nice. To know that we can do it from anywhere. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm coming at you from uh, an undisclosed location, everybody. (laughs) Oh, she's in witness protection. What'd you do? So I finally feel like almost myself again. You sound almost like yourself. Yeah. Yeah, everyone. I was really, really sick for the last week or so. And when you have a project that requires your voice and you don't have one, you can't really produce. (laughs) Now we know what singers feel like. Totally. You have new empathy for singers. Oh, a hundred percent. Like when they talk about being on vocal rest, I'm never going to roll my eyes again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a real thing. I get it, you guys. And we learned there's no sexy cures for having a crappy voice. Yeah. Thank you, Hillary Morrow. <laughs> Water and no talking. Do you guys have any idea how hard that is for me? Uh, <laughs> I mean, the water part's easy. No, no talking. talking. <laughs> I mean, I did my best. I like to think I handled it pretty well. I'm sure you did. You're a pro. I just basically sequestered myself so that there was no one around to feel compelled to talk to. Yep. We'd been thinking about doing these sort of reflection episodes. This felt like maybe it was the right time to put these episodes into the schedule. So, And we are coming up on our one year anniversary. It's so lovely. I know. I can't believe it's only been a year. I know. That's true. It feels like we've learned so much. Yeah. Yeah. And done so much. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and had so many great conversations. So that's what we were hoping to do was kind of reflect back. So this is for us, but you know, you guys are benefiting too, hopefully. <laughs> Maybe if you're just joining us, you're brand new, you're just listening to these episodes. This is like kind of like a sampler. If you liked what you heard in this episode, you can go back and listen to where that conversation came from and listen to the whole thing. Yeah, totally. And I'll also say that when we were figuring out how we wanted to structure these episodes, because we both are big podcast fans, and we've heard other podcasts do this type of thing before, we kind of settled on a couple of loose themes. And this first episode, I think the driving factor behind it was values. When Stephanie and I did our annual retreat over the summer, we actually really sat down and came up with core values that we want to have for Viola-centric. It was important to us that when we move forward with Viola-centric, that all of the work that we do is really grounded in these values. The five values that we came up with were authenticity, balance, growth, understanding, and of course, I think we can both agree at the root of it all is connection. connection. Yep. (laughs) Say it together, everyone. So we tried to choose excerpts from our episodes in the first season that maybe we're hinting at these values before we even really said them out loud. The very first one is our conversation with Robin who we both have known for many years and first as a violist, as a fellow freelancer here in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. And she transitioned to nursing. And we were both just so curious to hear about her experience. Mm -hmm. So this was a beautiful conversation with Robin. 
I've always known that I wanted to be a nurse and I've always known that I've wanted to be a musician. And it sounds kind of strange. They don't seem very relatable at the outset, at least. But when I was four years old, I blurted it out to my dad. I want to be a nurse. I didn't even know what that meant. I just said, I want to be a nurse. What I knew was that nurses take care of people. And I always knew that I wanted to take care of people. So for me to say that I wanted to be a nurse, I don't know that I knew exactly what that entailed, but I knew it meant presence. I knew it meant touch and I knew it meant healing. Then a whole year later, which is gigantic for a king, I discovered the piano and I was in love. And then later on, I started violin and I knew I was on like half a leg. So I was like, I'm trying to make this sound on the violin. It's not really working, but I can, I'll do what I can. Then I found the viola and my whole world opened up. I seriously found my voice, of course, when I found the viola. That was me. I had these two concurrent dreams, but music has a way of taking over if you let it. And it did. And I'm so happy that it did. And it still does because that's my passion. When I was going in for my undergrad and through life's happenings and pain and that sort of thing as you get older, you know, I found myself becoming a more alive musician, I guess, less concerned about perfection, more concerned about connection. I went through a terrible divorce and it ended up catapulting me back to myself. I was forced to look at myself so closely. And, you know, I knew that I was, I was struggling to maintain my passion, my life, my joy, and be there for Samara and show her what it is to be a strong woman, a strong mom, and yet be authentic and honest enough to say, mommy's hurting, mommy's not happy. It was an abusive marriage, which I can talk more about later or not. But the point of that is it made me have to stand up and say, what do I want for myself? Not just what do I want for Samara? What do I want for me? It was it was very difficult. And I just sat and I thought, I just said, I'm going to spend time in meditation and just think, what do I want for myself? And this sounds really silly, but I saw this commercial for my local community college and it said, you can get there from here. And that's their timeline, Howard Community College in Columbia, Maryland. And I kind of rested on that and I thought, I wanted to be a nurse years ago. Maybe it's not too late. Maybe I can still do it. I just said, you know what? Let me try. I'll just show up there, see what I have. Nursing school is notoriously difficult. <laughs> so it was it was wretched at, at times. I didn't stop. I didn't deny myself of any gigs because that's, you know, that's what we do. We love to play. Right. I showed up and I was very, very tired most of the time because I was up all night. I was studying. I'm very very proud of that because I was doing two things that I love to do. I was learning and I was a novice at something. I love being a novice because it means I'm vulnerable and I'm humble. And I would rather stay there than consider myself an expert or a master at anything. And that includes viola. I'm 
perpetually a student. We are all perpetual students. The moment we think we're not is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's in a very long-winded way how I ended up in nursing school. And when I graduated, that was the first time I ever set foot on a stage in my adult life without my viola. And I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> feel so naked, right? <laughs> naked. It was very surreal, but it's been, it's been a journey. Um, nurse Robin and violist Robin are the same person. Music and nursing are part of a spectrum for me. And the only thing that's different is maybe the instruments in my hand, but really the main instrument is my heart, my spirit, my ears. I have to listen so intently as a nurse and it's the same as a musician. So yeah, it's, it's been quite a journey for me and it's ongoing. <laughs> my mom years ago, when I was going through my divorce, she started calling me her black butterfly. <laughs> and that has kind of become my persona for myself. Um, the last few years for me, I've been in a cocoon and emerging as something very different. My last live recital was in February, like most of us. But my title for that recital was Metamorphosis because I feel that the last few years of my life have been a metamorphosis that's ongoing. I think to go back to your point, Twenty, about pain, for me, that is the common denominator between souls is pain. We all suffer. We all have pain. And without acknowledging that pain, there's no way to connect with someone else. And I think a lot of people are afraid to connect because to connect means you have to acknowledge that pain, right? One of the things that as a nurse for me is so important is to be able to see someone's pain and to meet them where they are, they call it caregiver's guilt, where you can say, oh, I'm healthy, I'm well, and I'm taking care of someone who's sick. You have to face that and throw that away and say, they may be sick, but I have pain. I have my own struggles. So I can sit by your bedside and meet you exactly where you are and still empathize because I know what it is to hurt. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken with a patient who might be a woman who has been abused or has been an addict or some other difficult situation that I can directly relate to because of my brokenness, my own brokenness, the brokenness of being a human. Those things inform us in how we connect with other people and they inform me as a musician because my music all of a sudden isn't about necessarily what the composer wrote. Of course it is. You know, I reference that, but I'm going to throw my own grave into there <laughs> to make that gravy just to say, you know, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. <laughs> sometimes I feel like a childless mother. Oh, whatever. I'm going to throw it in there because that's my experience. That's my story. Yeah. And I think music, I think it's, a way for us to access the pain that we don't know how to feel without it. And when you can get to a point where you're able to acknowledge that pain without something intangible like music, that's, that's another, that's like next level. <laughs> I think that's like leveling up or something in the terms of awareness. 
I consider you to be very empathic. I think that's another thing that we have in common. Do you find that difficult when you're with someone who's really suffering? I mean, how do you take that? Do you take it home? I do. Um, I've, I've been advised not to, but I can't. I can't deny who I am. To do so would be to deny myself. You know, even as a musician, I, I'm going to feel, <laughs> I have to feel. And if that means that I have to cry, that means I'm going to cry. And I cry every day. <laughs> I cried every day before I became a nurse. And now even more so, I see people die. I see people come back to life. I hear people in their final moments expressing regret or expressing peace. Um, these are all very powerful experiences that I feel very blessed to witness and, and just to be a very small part of. I, I created a little thing <laughs> for myself, which I call my happy yellow bubble. I, my, yellow is my favorite color, of course. And I, I have this bubble that when I'm nurse Robin, mostly, some, as a musician sometimes, but mostly as a nurse, I bop around in my yellow bubble. And it's penetrable. You know, people can come into the bubble. I can invite people in or I can push people out if I have to. Usually I don't have to. <laughs> but it is, it's a protective mechanism because when I first started as a nurse, I was in the ER setting, which is very rough. It's, I mean, it's like, Rough and tumble. I mean, people are screaming at you. People are cursing, spitting, fighting. I mean, it's it's very aggressive. And here I come, yay! <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing is, a lot of my coworkers are like, "Oh, Robin's not gonna last. She's way too nice. She does not fit in here." And I was in Baltimore, and I'm, you know, no less. But I I created this happy yellow bubble so that I could be myself. I can walk into a room, I can have someone cursing at me or whatever the case may be, and I can still be Robin and still love you, but I still have my boundaries. The funny thing is, before I became a nurse, I was not very good at establishing boundaries for myself. Everything was yes. Mm. I said yes to everyone. Yeah, listen, we all do, right? Because you think, oh, I need to get the job, I need to impress this person. No, I started really looking at myself like what are the things that are most important to me I'm protecting my peace so for the last four years or so I've been very very intentional about how I start my days how I give out my energy and how I preserve my energy This excerpt is from our episode with Molly Sharp, the season of soft pants. Does everyone remember when we just got to wear soft pants all the time? I'm still trying to hang on to that. <laughs> I miss those days. <laughs> anyway, we had such a lovely conversation with Molly about so many things, but one of the excerpts that really stuck out to us was her experience in researching trauma and how trauma is a broader term maybe than some of us have association with and then how that kind of plays into our experiences as musicians. We thought this would be a really interesting kind of dive into that part of it. Someone told me a story of their first recital experience that was just they're like, no one prepared me for what might have happened to in my body. And so it's like, I don't sound like I do at home and like, what's going on? My knees are shaking. And 
it's kind of set up, you know, a whole chain of performance anxiety throughout their life. So yeah, it doesn't have to be like you were beaten and <laughs> as a kid, right? you know, and then we have some maladaptive coping mechanisms that maybe you, your coping mechanism as a kid was to be the perfect one. And then classical music, does it reward perfectionists and people pleasers? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure does. You have to have <laughs> enough perfectionism in mu- classical music so you can get this really high bar and fit in this box but at what cost I mean there's room for perfectionism but it can also like take over the driver's seat yeah that's part of it it's like how do your coping mechanisms as a kid inform how you're react how you're navigating through the world and also like as teachers is our student having a trauma response in front of us I can remember teaching a lesson and this is a college age student and I don't even know what we were working on, and maybe I said, like, this is out of tune. I don't even know what I said, or maybe I just, we were working on it and kept working on it, and they were getting more upset, finally started crying, and I could have either said, thought, well, it's a tough business, you know, you got to be tough to be a musician, so here, do some more shradiac, and that'll probably help. <laughs> that'll help, yes. What? <laughs> or ask, what just, what just happened? And they said, all I could hear was my dad telling me I'm stupid and worthless. Oh, that makes me want to cry. I know. So I'm not a therapist and we're not, I'm not going to give you counseling, but I can say that this is something you can heal. I mean, our mind is like neuroplasticity is the thing. It's like they've learned that your brain at any age, you can rewire stuff. Trauma responses can be changed. You know, EMDR, meditation, all that yoga becoming embodied is a huge part of trauma healing Mm -hmm. as teachers we need to know even if you feel like i i didn't have trauma i don't need to learn about this if you teach actually if you interact with people it's helpful it's a helpful lens to have yeah so i I mentioned meditation so one process that i'm becoming certified in is called therapeutic meditation process and it was developed by tanya penny who's a coach i've worked with and a big part of it is uncovering beliefs that don't serve you anymore Mm -hmm. because that's a big part of healing it until that belief until you bring it up really look at it and kind of find its opposite truth that's going to trigger you so that's part of the meditation process and so I would say also uh, becoming more embodied getting in touch with those feelings so that you learn the telltale signs like wow my stomach starts to hurt when I think about this concert or I don't know it just puts you more in touch with how you react under stress and pressure maybe you're overextended (laughs) you know maybe when you get the call for a gig and you think oh I should take it because I need the money but your some your gut is like clenched up Mm. (laughs) yeah it's just reading the signs Mm -hmm. that's what this process does and so it's journaling and reflection but also the guided meditation as well so it's a tool. So I would eventually like to be a support for people who are on this journey to be a resource, provide some tools. I think it's needed, and I find a lot of satisfaction from kind of being able to hold space with people. And, and that's part of finding your voice, isn't it? Is removing all that stuff, stripping it away, unraveling it all. 
Season two of the Viola-centric podcast is sponsored by the ArcRest, a wonderfully resonant shoulder pad solution for violinists and violists. The ArcRest shoulder pad features a comfortable foam pad, allowing increased freedom of movement over traditional shoulder rests. You know, I had been playing with significant shoulder pain and the ArcRest turned out to be just what I needed to create an ease of mobility. And now I play virtually pain-free. Yes, and I switched because I was searching for a more vibrant sound. The ArcRest's pad provides for less dampening, freeing up resonance for a fuller sound. In fact, Liz and I are so in love with our ArcRests that we decided to compose a haiku in their honor. (laughs) So Liz, you want to go first? I would love to. Delicate contact makes space for deep resonance. My viola sings. It's lovely. I love that. How about yours? Okay, mine is playing without pain, freeing my mind and body, sound of resonance. Love that. If you would like more information, you can visit thearcrest.com. That's T-H-E-A-R-C-R-E-S-T dot com. Hello all, Liz and Steph here. As you know, Liz and I choose our sponsors because we really and truly value authenticity. We can talk most easily about things that we love and use regularly, which is why Potter Violins is such a natural partnership. Yes, Steph and I both have been taking our violas to Potters for years because we know they're a shop that really knows about violas. Their luthiers are some of the best in the country, and I trust them completely with my wooden baby. And not only that, but I'm actually bow shopping right now, which can be overwhelming. But I always go to Potters first because I trust them to help me find the perfect one for my instrument and playing style. Yep, both Steph and I found our violas there. Bottom line is that we both love the Potters team and we're thrilled to welcome them as a season two sponsor. If you're interested in learning more about what they offer, you can find them at potterviolins.com and at potterviolins on Instagram. One of the episodes that I remember feeling very inspired after was our conversation with Tiffany Richardson. She's the director of community outreach for the National Philharmonic. And both Liz and I know her as a you know, fellow violist. And she just has so many insights about many, many topics. But this one topic Liz and I are super interested in, which was the idea of scarcity mindset as it applies to freelance musicians. Mm-hmm. And trying to get a handle on why we feel that way and how we can shift that to have more joy and feel less competition in our careers as musicians. Enjoy this clip from Tiffany. We are all afraid of things probably every day and fear is a really powerful mm, tool, manipulator. Yes. In our field. Mm Mm-hmm. And that also takes me to scarcity. Mm -hmm. I think that scarcity is so pervasive in the arts world. And so when you talk about losing opportunities, because we're trying to be more equitable, truly, if we're coming from an abundant standpoint, there's enough to go around. Yes. But that is really, really, really hard. And that's not really something that we perpetuate in our field. But that is something that's there. Like, there is enough work to go around. It may not be the kind of work you think you want to do. But if we all really looked at 
I'm curious if we all looked at what our why was or what we really wanted to do, how many people would change their path slightly. Mm -hmm. Not that they wouldn't be performing, but it might just look different. Mm -hmm. And I think what you've both created is so beautiful because it just, it's another example that you can take what you love and turn it into something unique that can bring more to your life, more opportunities. Like you said, Stephanie, you have so many opportunities because you have flexibility, because you have a beautiful performance career that's outside of, you know, a strict schedule. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like we need to do the work to look at what we need and what we want individually before we expect that we should have what we think we want. Mm -hmm. But I, I can appreciate that a lot of people are having those really difficult conversations and feel threatened. Maybe it's about time that we feel threatened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just totally could not agree more. And I am so motivated to find a way to help people feel like it's okay to look at it from a different perspective. Yeah. It's okay to do that. There's just so much. Yeah, the fear of scarcity is it's deep. Yeah, it's deep in our business. And you know what? It's not even our business. It's our society. Yeah, that's right. It's capitalism. Yep. It's the way our world works. And so it is so deep. But there are a lot of people out there that are not living in that mentality and in that perspective. It is hard when you're surrounded by them. So I find that putting myself into new situations is really helpful and in comfortable situations. Ironically, <laughs> I ended up becoming more comfortable going into incarcerated spaces after a long time than other spaces. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it can be a very scary environment to go into. It's very jarring, slamming doors. You don't know what's going to happen. There's a feeling of unpredictability. However, when you really get in there and you do the work, you realize like this is nothing to do with you. Mm -hmm. This is not about me. This is not about how perfectly I play the viola. Like this is not why I'm here. Right. And it transforms your perspective. I love that. And so if we could all have an experience like that, it doesn't have to be that. But if we could all put ourselves into an experience that is so unexpected, that could be one way where we could change our perspectives with our actual instruments. Yeah. It's just so interesting to be embedded in a community where you don't belong. And that, you know, like, just just do that. You know, you will learn everything about yourself real quick. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully you will not run away and shut it all, bury it all down. And, you know, it's going to bring up a lot. <laughs> yeah. And then you work through it. Yes. That's one way, I think, where if, if, if we try as classical musicians to stay in our safe zones then, you know, we're kind of missing the point. Mm -hmm. We need to get uncomfortable. Yeah. Yes. I love, I love it. Yeah. That's, I mean, you can't, you can't grow without being uncomfortable. Absolutely. You can't. It's so good to think about. And I, I think one of the things that Stephanie and I would like to be a part of is that just subtle shift in mentality. Mm -hmm. If someone is inspired by the conversation, abundance versus scarcity. So we're very new to this concept as far as neither of us feel particularly authoritative on the subject. But you mentioned something about how it, it comes from the inside. This shift is not, it's not something other people can see in you as a human being. It's something that you feel. That's the work that, has to happen on a grander scale. It's just the question is how? Yeah, competition is so pervasive too. And 
I never thought I was a very competitive person. Like I didn't, I never wanted to do competitions. And like violists, I think generally anyway, you know, we're a family. I, I really like all of my teachers were the most loving, generous people, but that doesn't always exist. And I think that that's something that we need to talk about too is is what is competition doing? Not that it shouldn't exist because we need a level of competition to continue to raise standards. But if we're looking at what perfectionism means mm-hmm. and how that's a product of capitalism, we need to readjust these kind of structures that we exist in. And then what does that look like when we're more supportive of each other and when we are in an abundant state, we're more willing to share opportunities. And when you give more, you get more. I've done some money workshops and or like read these books and the exercises donate to, for, to organizations for 30 days. And every time I've done that, people have donated to Sound Impact or like a financial opportunity has come my way. It's really fascinating. It's just like this concept of the more you put out there, the more that the universe gives you. Mm. And I think it's not just for money. That goes for everything, energy and community. That's not easy for everyone. And that is, go back to fear. (laughs) (laughs) That brings up all sorts of fear, even talking about it, right? (laughs) Yes. But I think that is one of the things that we need to normalize too in the musician world is talking about money and finances and and what that means because we're always calculating the no versus the yes right oh well if i say yes to this and i don't say no to this are they ever going to call me again yes right we're constantly breeding scarcity fear and competition mm-hmm. oh my god <laughs> <laughs> what freelancing musician listening to this doesn't think that way you get the opportunity so many times i can think about the yes that I said to a job that I was like, well, I don't have a job that weekend. I know this other group that I play with that I would maybe rather play with because it pays better or whatever hasn't asked me yet. I took this other job. I said yes to that. Then the other group calls and you're like, okay, so what? how do I weigh this decision? And it's literally based in worry that if I make the wrong decision, something bad is going to happen to my career. Yeah. And I, I wonder how much of that actually tracks. What do we build up in our mind as a reality that is not accurate. And then we weigh that so heavily in the decisions that we make, the yeses and the noes. Yeah, what are the stories we're telling ourselves that are complete stories? Really fascinating. I will say that since I, you know, this is interesting to like talk about this and think about this because it's once I really decided where I was going to direct my work and my focus, I don't go down these spirals. Yeah, yeah. And so it's interesting. I was thinking about this as you were talking like, oh, yeah, I haven't been doing that to myself. You don't answer the question once and then that's it. You know, you go back to it. You keep going back. Um, It could be every three months. It could be every three years. It's really dependent on what's going on in your life. But once you really take a sharp look at where you want to put your energy, I mean, that helps you be abundant too. You're not worried about what you're missing. FOMO disappears, right? Right. Yes. And it makes it easier to give other people opportunities. So for our first Reflections episode of the season, we thought we would 
end it with a couple of excerpts from Jennifer Wade's conversation, The Shift to Abundance. And it was really lovely, I think, to talk with Jennifer after we had talked with Tiffany, because I think they sort of dovetailed off of each other some of the ideas that were being shared. It was really, really cool. It's not surprising that connection is a value that comes up a lot for other people that we talk to. And Jennifer is no exception. She is a values-based identity coach. And she references that connection is one of her personal values a lot. So in the first clip, you won't hear me talking about this, but we had a whole conversation about that feeling where you have to check your identity at the door in order to fit whatever gig it is that you're playing. And I have been playing around with it since. It's not that I'm doing the job any differently. I'm definitely still aiming to blend with my section and do all of the things that we are trained to do as orchestra musicians, but experimenting with this a little bit. And I... I may have downplayed the amount of work that that is to do in a mindset a shift. So that's what Jennifer takes and kind of runs with in the first clip. And then in the second clip, we thought it would be a nice way to end. She really speaks about gratitude and how gratitude is another major value for her. And we're just so grateful that we have had these opportunities over the last year, aren't we? Like it's just... Mm. It's been so incredible. life-changing, honestly. Yes, in a huge way. And it's just phenomenal to think it's only been a year, but also it's been a whole year. And we hope you enjoy these final clips from Jennifer Wade. I don't think it's a little shift at all. I think it's a huge shift. To me, it sounds like what you're saying, and I feel like I identify with this, is that when you are hired to come into a section, there's this sort of default setting in our mind that we have to blend with what's already been established. So we have to mold ourselves into this external idea. But what ideally should be happening in every job, in every rehearsal, is that everybody is finding their level together. So there is no external thing that you're matching to. It's created in that moment by the people who are there. Love it. To me, that's a pretty big difference. If we're just assuming that we have to change ourselves to something that's already in place, that's already inviting the sense of losing ourselves. I wonder if that's a thing that's unique to string players. Because imagine yourself as a trombonist or whatever, and you're coming into a much smaller section, and there's no avoiding that you have a different sound than the person on first trombone or whatever. And so it's a much more collaborative effort of blending. Mm. But string players, maybe one person is new from a whole section of 12 violins. Yeah, that's so interesting. Because when you're talking about it, Stephanie, I was thinking, I wonder if it feels more like chamber music back there. Yep. I do know that in assistant type settings back there, that's probably the hardest job to sit in. That's different. Yeah. Your job is not to have an identity. (laughs) Yeah. Is this mind blowing or what? You sit there and sometimes your job is to pick up sections from a movement because the principal has a lot of work to do in that concert and they don't want to blow their chops out. So you have to play them. You have to act as them for like an entire movement or they are holding a long note after a huge solo and that note continues into a section and you have to basically like take it over so they can stop, which blows my mind. I'm like, so you have to basically sound identical to this. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. I love it in a way. Me too. Because I love that idea of trying to meld the sound in such a way that it sounds like one person playing the same thing. But it's also like everything that's wrong with the way my brain works. That makes my head want to explode, honestly. (laughs) And this goes deeper into being your authentic self, right? 
our goal is to speak our truths and be authentic and just be who we are. And to think about having to shoehorn yourself into, I have to sound exactly like this other person, especially if you can't delineate your instrument from yourself. Mm. (laughs) And then to have to be forced into that box. Whoa, (laughs) that must really mess with you. Yeah, I think there's a lot of room to lose yourself in that. I think it's so fair to point that out. I also think that not necessarily always is, but there can be a flip side. Forgive me for going back to this, but I think it depends on what that person's values are. One of the reasons I adore being a second violinist is because I love the challenge of matching, Mm. of trying to quote unquote, lose myself. Mm -hmm. I actually find that as stimulating and enjoying because on some weird way, that is part of connection. That's like empathy in a way, musical empathy. For sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To think, okay, I know how you're creating this. I feel it. And I'm going to I'm going to respond by going with it. I'm going to match you. I just made this sort of connection in my head that musical empathy is exciting and wonderful, but there's a point when it can become unhealthy. Like if you don't have your own defined sound in any situation, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And in the same way that empathy in the real world is this beautiful thing. It can also take you over. It can get people into trouble. Exactly. Yes. I totally feel that because I find it exhilarating too to be able to morph myself into certain situations. But before pandemic times, I don't know that I knew what my unique voice was. Yes. Mm. Do you feel like you know it now? Yes. I feel like I'm a little closer in making decisions that feel right for me. That's fantastic. And so now it's a lovely challenge to be like, okay, well, if I was playing this myself, I might do this, I might take time here. But I do love the challenge of putting myself in those situations where I have to be a certain way. I love it. Me too. Gratitude is one of my absolute top values, and it has been. And even though some values have shifted over the years, that one has remained rock solid. And I I have this sneaking suspicion it will be for the rest of my life. I just know in my core that it changes my experience of absolutely everything. So I say in the course that it's like wearing a pair of glasses. It doesn't change the world, but it changes how you see everything for the better. And like you said, Liz, it's not always easy. It's something that you have to practice, something that you cultivate over time. I just remember I had played a job and I just was feeling so lucky to be able to play this music. And I posted something on Facebook and a lot of people responded like, oh man, you're really putting me to shame. Like, oh, that was such a long slog. And I just remember that kind of made me look and think about the mentality that sometimes we bring to jobs. And I've been there myself. If you can shift into that place of gratitude, it just changes your experience. Instead of feeling gross and like you cannot wait for it to be over, it allows you to be a little bit more present and calmer. And so I think of gratitude also as a big stepway toward that abundant mindset. So if everything that comes to you is a gift, and it's not something that you're entitled to. If you can be grateful that you've crossed paths with this opportunity, it's just a more receptive place. It feels better. It just literally feels better physically and emotionally. Thank you so much for listening today. And thanks also to our season two sponsor, Arkrest. Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts 
where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Club. You can support our future episodes by supporting our sponsors through our PayPal link or Venmo and by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And please consider sharing your favorite episodes with your music-loving friends. Our episodes are produced by Liz O'Hara Starr. The Viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogeman and is performed by Steph and myself. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon. Let's talk soon.